Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Those are 10 experiences, which I think are all amazing, quite diverse, and are all very much kind of rooted in that place. You know, you can only, I think for all of them, I would confidently say you can only have that experience there. That was Kenny Dunn talking about his list of top 10 European food experiences that he put together for you today. You're going to want to get your pens ready because this is an epic list worth building an itinerary around Kenny is actually a college buddy. He's got a fascinating story. He was one of my earliest travel inspirations, as you'll hear in this interview. And believe it or not, when he started his food tour company, it started in Rome, Italy. And at that time, food tours didn't exist in Rome, which seems insane. And now there are plenty of offerings. But Kenny kind of kickstarted it all. And since 2011, his company, Eating Europe, has guided over 300,000 travelers to the best local eats in Europe's greatest cities. They now have 10 cities they operate in at the time of this recording. And what I was really excited to talk to Kenny about outside of hearing his highly curated list that he's going to share with you today was his journey and how travel really led him to discover his passion for food. I wanted to hear more about how and why his round-the-world trip ended at the first stop. (laughs) There's a crazy story about that. And in addition to this highly curated list, he also shares his process, how he discovers these authentic places so you can have more authentic food experiences and meet more locals anywhere in the world. All of that and much more coming at you right now, today. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out. Letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Food, one of the greatest joys of travel, not only tasting new foods and the smells and all of the things that come with the actual experience of eating food that we all love as humans, but the ability of food to create those connections, to bond, to meet locals, to understand a culture. Uh, It's a wonderful way 
to connect with a place and its people. And as a traveler, you never forget those food experiences. Those are some of the memories that stick with you forever. (laughs) Those incredible meals, those moments that you shared with strangers who became new friends, all of it. And I couldn't think of a better guest to talk about food experiences in Europe than the wonderful and always charming Kenny Dunn, who is the founder of Eating Europe. Check him out at eatingeurope.com. You heard what's happening today, much more than just the top 10 experiences, although just that list is making this episode worth a listen. But we're going to dig in, so to speak. Yes, I went there. We're going to dig into Kenny's story. And I think at the heart of it, another example of how travel can really help guide you towards discovering or rediscovering your passions. And if you carry on with that, even building a life and a career around that, which is a small part of uh, this bigger conversation, but nonetheless, a theme that I think is important to point out as we go into this. Please enjoy my chat with Kenny Dunn and stick around on the back end if you'd like to hear one of my favorite food experiences that I've had on the ground. I'll share that with you as well as a quote to send you on your way. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the other side, my friend. I got to formally welcome you here, Kenny Dunn. I've been waiting to say this for a while. Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you. We tried this about six years ago, and we crashed and burned. There was some major audio issues, so a lot's happened since then. We've got so much more uh, content, six years of new content, and nobody heard the old one. Anyways. You know how to um, spin a yarn, I would say. Yeah, so I, I imagine there's going to be some... You've spun a few <laughs> yarns. I, I mean... I've made some sweaters out of stories. I mean, is it fair to say you own the world's biggest food tour company? I'd like to say that was fair to say, but I think we're not the biggest. Um, but one of the biggest, so that's fair to say, but not in pole position. Eating Europe. Yeah, eating Europe. We know each other. I was going to try to get on a ski trip you guys recently been on, but I, I didn't make it, but we both studied at Penn State. What did you study at Penn State? I studied business. I was in the Smeal College of Business and studied kind of marketing and finance. Okay. I mean, that kind of, I guess that ties in with what you're doing now yeah. and running a business. Yeah. But, um, but like, which town did you grow up in? Okay, so not too far from you. I'm uh, also a Philadelphia suburb guy. Um, the actual town is Ambler, Pennsylvania, which is about, you know, a half hour, 40 minutes from, uh, from Philadelphia, from the city. Did you guys travel growing up? Because I don't know anything about your childhood or how you how you grew up. Yeah, um, I mean, we went to Florida, <laughs> uh, so that was a big trip. Sometimes went up to Vermont to go skiing, um, and that was really it. I mean, in terms of like, well, I think one trip to Mexico in high school, um, you know, with the family. So really, um, you know, traveling was U.S. and mostly kind of East Coast. There may have been a trip uh, to Colorado at some point. Uh, Yeah, there was one of those. So, yeah, I'd never been to Europe until college. 
you know, hadn't really been abroad other than, than Mexico, you know, yeah. until so, after college. Unbeknownst to you, you were actually a, an inspiration for me as a traveler because, you know, back then, I mean, not, not to like date ourselves too much here. We're getting to like the old man talk here way back in my day, but seriously, how you, how you sort of got inspired by travel back then was through conversations, through stories. I'm not sure if you studied abroad. I did. In, in okay. Where did you go? Were you in Spain? Yeah. So I was in Spain. So that was kind of my first big, wow, there's, there's a whole world out here and, and that was real eye-opening. I think for a lot of people, going to Europe, doing the backpacking thing is is a pretty cool trip that, you know, opens your eyes to a lot of things. So that happened for me junior year, kind of 2021. I was age 2021. 20, what made you decide to do that? I mean, you hadn't had like a lot of experience abroad, like you mentioned before. At that point in your life, do you remember, was that like something it just came out of nowhere. It's just like, it was like, Oh, this is just a thing. Like, yeah. What was your kind of your mindset then? Um, I, you know, like you were saying, it's all, it was all about just kind of stories. So someone older than me had, uh, you know, was on that program, I think the year before or two years before. And with me and, you know, I went with a few other friends, some of whom, you know, um, from Penn State, and I think we just heard these older guys' stories, and uh, it's like I'm doing that, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, I, I studied in Sevilla. That was the same trip that uh, these two other guys had done, and um, I, you know, I knew nothing about it. I had about six years of Spanish or eight years through high school, middle school, and also college, and spoke like seven words. Um, so I was really going there, like to put my non-Spanish to work. Um, and um, yeah, just thought it sounded so cool. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't really something I wanted to do when I got to Penn State as a freshman, but got inspired and, and decided to do it. So you mentioned that kind of being eye-opening. Was that the experience that kind of kick-started your life of travel, would you say, if you had to pinpoint it to one moment? Yeah, that, I mean, that was, yeah, that was the first one that was kind of feeling independent, hopping on trains and doing all the things you do when you're traveling in Europe, uh, you know, with a backpack and all that, staying in hostels. So, yeah, in many ways it did. It kind of gave me, I guess, the confidence and opened my eyes to, you know, in Europe in one month you can, you know, visit, I don't know, eight different countries with different languages. Back then, it was before the Euro. So again, the date ourselves, so exchanging money, that's kind of all part of it too. So yeah, I think so. But then later, I had two cousins who were traveling all over the place, to India, to New Zealand, to South America. And they would, I was living in New York, so this is like maybe five years, four years after that study abroad. And they would stay with me in between trips and tell me the stories. And so if you're saying I influenced you through my stories, yeah, these two cousins of mine, brother and sister, um, were doing that for me. And I would, you know, they'd pop in on the road looking all shaggy with the craziest tales from riding motorcycles in India and all kinds of stuff. And that was like, wow, 
I want to be like them. <laughs> you know, so I think the seed was first planted in Spain and then the travels afterward through, through Western Europe. And then it was really kind of uh, cultivated after hearing, um, you know, after hearing my cousins come back from some of their travels. I guess talk about this time in New York. So you finished college and then you were kind of living the, the city life in New York. So or? again, kind of bringing our two stories together while you were on the road doing, uh, I'm sure your audience has heard about, you know, the, your promotional tours, um, driving wacky vehicles, driving wacky vehicles. <laughs> I was driving less wacky vehicles, still a little wacky, some trucks, um, I started right out of, um, right after Penn State with two of my closest friends. We, um, we started a business going around the college campuses, doing all kinds of like, um, kind of promotions for phone card companies, uh, credit card companies. Then we were selling posters. So I spent two years kind of on the road, just like you. And I remember you and I kind of talking about this way back when, um, uh, staying in hotels and kind of doing that life, which, you know, I think a lot of people in your audience, uh, you know, that's something, you know, that was all in the U.S., but it was still traveling, going to all, probably like 40 states, most of them, you know, all of which have maybe four I had never been to in my life. So that was pretty amazing and super fun. Plus, we had a business, which was going well, so that was really exciting. Then I moved to New York, and we ran the business out of one of uh, my friend Dave's apartment in, um, in New York. And so, yeah, I was in New York at that time, kind of off the road, managing that business, um, and then hearing all these travel stories and it started to grow in my head like all right how long do I want to do this for what if I took some time and you know left this and figured out what I want to do next in life while kind of traveling uh you know traveling around so that was what was happening uh, at that time so yeah what was that process like like how did you untether from the business you were running cuz you were running it with your friends and stuff like that how did you sort of navigate those conversations and, and like sort of figure out a way to kind of cut the cord and go off and have this time, which I want to talk about next. Right. Um, so it was three of us, me, Dave and Ben. And so Ben left, uh, left first to go to grad school, to go to business school. So that was just two of us. We, it had been seven years. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I don't remember it, you know, some years have passed, but, you know, I think Dave and I were just, yeah, it was pretty kind of open and fluid. And I was just like, you know, I think in a year from now, I might be ready to, to do something else. And I don't remember kind of a singular conversation or anything too emotional, but just you know, as the time went on, it was like, I think next year I'm going to to do something else. And that something else was buying a round-the-world ticket and uh, and heading off on a, a whole new adventure. So, and then Dave stayed with the company and ran it, I think, for another six or seven years um, on his own. Okay. I'm not exactly sure, but this is like what I heard through the grapevine. And I'm excited to talk to you about this because this was the part that was really... 
I remember hearing this and just thinking like, Kenny's the coolest. Like, this is so cool. He's just took off to travel around the world. At that point, like you said, I've been traveling on the road and I've been doing these trips overseas and stuff like that. So it wasn't like new to travel, but the idea of like sort of going around the world and just staying for years and not coming back, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I am, but I heard that you, you had this around the world thing. You went to New Zealand and that was like your first stop and you just never left your first stop for like years or something. Is that right? Yeah. So I don't know if these round the world tickets still exist, but basically you, yeah, they do. Oh, okay. They do. Yeah. Well, you would know. So, um, so these round the world tickets still exist and these companies that sell them, depending on how many tickets you end up redeeming it for, you know, how many flights you do as part of this package, you know, is how much money they make. So I was probably the most profitable customer they've ever had because I had like six tickets, which I I mean, I had a sweet itinerary. I was going to go from New Zealand to Australia to Indonesia to India. I think maybe even, um, yeah, like Malaysia might have been in there. Um, and and then fly back from India to the U.S. in 12 months because that's how long you have, 365 days. So I abandoned those plans. I went to New Zealand and literally on the last day of this 365-day um, ticket, um, I flew from New Zealand to Australia. <laughs> so I... I didn't do any of those other flights. I think I even got hit with a bunch of cancellation fees. But basically, at some point, I decided, um, you know, isn't the aim of this just to have just to have as much fun as possible? And I was having the best time in New Zealand. And so I just said, I'm staying here. And uh, I didn't get to use that ticket to go to any of those other destinations. I don't want to generalize, but I'd say most people in that situation, they're going to just like sort of keep going and keep exploring. It's a different kind of decision to just be like, you know what? Like, I'm actually content here. This is cool. I I don't need to keep going. And, and, you know, that's, you you book a trip like that and you're thinking you're going to explore the world, but you just (laughs) stopped at the first place because you were having a great time. I I just thought that was so cool. And also because you were gone for so long, it just really inspired me because I had met people you know, you meet the random Australians in uh, in the hostels or whatever, and they're like, oh, you know, you're like, I'm traveling for three months. And you think it's like, you know, and they're like, we're traveling for five years. And you're just like, my piddly three months is nothing. <laughs> you shouldn't compare yourself to anybody. But, you know, I would be inspired by them. And but they, then there were just like, you know, travelers I'd meet. But you were somebody I knew and, and you had gone off and you were, you know, and I didn't, you know, there weren't a lot of people like us that were traveling in this way a lot of people were like sort of building traditional careers and, and stuff like that like i'm not like poo-pooing that there's nothing against that it's just that i felt a connection with you and i was inspired by it because i felt like we had a similar mindset of just getting out and exploring and seeing somebody i know like do it and just like kind of take off and never come back for however long i was just like well this is this is cool <laughs> well i think i mean it's no coincidence that you and i both right out of college were kind of hit the road, you know, doing very similar jobs, um, you know, traveling around all those cities. So I think coming back to your earlier question about when was that seed planted? Yeah. I mean, first was 
studying abroad. But then I think just that, you know, maybe that's when the seed was planted, but the first kind of implementation was that traveling around the college campuses, you know, for almost two full years, just living in hotels. Um, and so then when I went abroad to, you know, New Zealand and then onwards from there, um, you know, I already kind of had that traveler kind of mindset, even though one was in the U.S. and now was abroad. I mean, the other thing I'll say is I think for me, uh, it started, I was, you know, like, mo like most people, I went to New Zealand, was staying in different youth hostels, you know, and I was doing all that. And then I settled in and we could talk about wolfing. Um, I was doing some wolfing and I got connected with this whole community of kind of students and other people from all over the world. And basically why I decided to stay in New Zealand was because I had this amazing community of, you know, friends and, and people that, you know, I was starting to really kind of form tight relationships with, and I didn't want to leave that. So it wasn't, I didn't travel around New Zealand for a year. I, you know, I traveled for maybe three, four months and then spent like six or eight months, um, kind of in one place and really settled in. So that, that's the other thing just to, I think is worth kind of mentioning and clarifying because, you know, those are two very different things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're going to love this segue. Speaking of planting seeds, Kenny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you want to talk about wolfing because I, this has to be tied in with what you're doing right now. Yeah, that absolutely. And also, I think I, I know uh, you've covered it on, on the program. I had never heard of it. So I was in a hostel in, uh, in New Zealand and some people had their little wolfing book. I don't know if there's still actually a printed book uh, these days, but um, and they were telling me about it. And I had met some other guys at the hostel and we decided to check it out. <laughs> and um, so basically the, for those who haven't tuned into your earlier episodes covering wolfing, it's willing workers on organic farms. And it's a way to kind of learn about growing food, stay with, you know, different people, cool people and unique settings. Um, they also feed you. So it's a great way to kind of travel around also to get, really get off the beaten path, you know? Um, so my first one was a real nightmare experience. We ended up like leaving after two days. It was this really weird guy in New Zealand, but then it was, then we weren't deterred and it was all kind of, uh, all positive experiences from that. And so I ended up doing that in New Zealand and Australia, where I went to, like I said, after, after, uh, right before my around the world ticket expired. And I, I wouldn't say I mastered anything, but I, I did some mud brick building. I, you know, learned how to, yeah, kind of create organic gardens and, um, stayed on all kinds of like <laughs> hippie communes. I mean, some really, some spiritual kind of meditation centers where they were also having woofers. Um, I mean, this one place in, in Australia, I mean, basically half the people are naked all the time, surfing, farming. I mean, anything you typically do with your clothes on, they, they would do with their, 
without clothes. Um, that was quite a, a, a fun <laughs> experience. So I was just at that time, like, like wanting to experience and do anything and everything. Um, that's what that trip was about, um, or that kind of chapter. Um, and yeah, wolfing was a great way to do that. So you meet local people and you stay in their homes or in different kind of places, community centers, whatever. And, um, and then a lot of times you get friendly with them and they're like, hey, why don't you come out with us tonight? And so you're, you know, one of the best parts when you're traveling is if you have a local friend who can take you around. And so wolfing, not always, but in many cases, kind of um, did that, you know. And then later kind of couch surfing kind of filled it later in life. Um, I did a lot of couch surfing. That was a similar thing. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. Correct me if I'm wrong, but growing up in suburban Philadelphia and then going to Penn State, you weren't in your backyard growing organic food or Very staying young. on hippie yeah. communes. I mean, Penn right? State has a lot of that. It just wasn't my scene. But yeah, so no, I wasn't. I wasn't. Yeah, because get, getting into this, it sounds like, well, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I get the sense that, yeah, you were connecting with something that 
you were like discovering some side of you that was also pa- was passionate about this type of not just life, but you know, food and where it comes from. And I mean, I don't think anybody wolfs wolfs and does all that for as long as you did without having some kind of passion and connection to it. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm just wondering, like, for you as an individual, that part of your life, how did that sort of feed into your you like kind of connecting with yourself, I guess. I had just finished, like I said, running this business um, for seven years, you know, which is uh, a good amount of time, but had no idea. I knew that I didn't want to keep doing that, but I had no idea what I wanted to do next. And so for me, that trip really was like kind of crocodile D style, you know, I'm going to go for a walkabout. And figure some stuff out, you know, and so um, I, you know, so that was really getting exposed. I mean, a big part of it was going from kind of the suburbs, having never like put my hands in dirt to grow anything. I mean, I think my dad did have a veggie garden when I was little, but I was really young and probably not that interested to learning all about that, learning all about permaculture, which is a whole system for kind of um, sustainable living, which a big part is growing your own food. I did a course on that. I mean, you know, I purposely wolfed at a lot of different like meditation centers because I was really into trying to learn about, you know, meditation and different spiritual practices. And, um, and so that whole trip was really me being a sponge and trying to, learn as much as possible yeah and then like you were saying you know when you met these people in some hostels who were traveling around you meet so many interesting people who have such different backgrounds than than what i have where most of my friends even at penn state were from the philadelphia kind of northeast area with pretty similar backgrounds to me and now i'm meeting people all different ages all different parts of the world who have very different stories and very different backgrounds. And so that was part of it too. I I did a ton of hitchhiking in New Zealand. So every one of those rides was kind of getting someone's biography and like, and hearing some wild stories about, yeah. I remember getting picked up by this couple in their eighties who had immigrated from the Netherlands to New Zealand, thinking it was a tropical Island only to find out that's, actually similar weather on the North Island to, um, to where they came from. And this was like in the forties or something. Um, but anyway, it was all just totally eye opening with the wolfing part being maybe one of the most significant aspects, but kind of everything about just being in a very different place, meeting all kinds of different people and trying to throw myself into as many new experiences as possible. Why did you want to connect with the spirituality uh, that that side of you? Like, what was it? Um, I think, yeah, that was. I mean, I think you know, if you if you have a real intention around wanting to, I mean, I said before, like I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next in life, but it wasn't just about kind of vocationally speaking. What do I want to do next? Uh, in life, it was more like, what do I want my life to look like? What do I want to? So, you know, I think if you're 
in that kind of, I don't know, vision quest kind of life journey, then it's hard to separate that from spirituality. You know, for some people, maybe that's more religious and others. I mean, for me, it was really just trying to, yeah, I guess also like figure out who, who I was, uh, who I wanted to be and kind of, um, and part of that was trying to um, expose myself to as many new things as possible. And um, spirituality was, was one part of that. How long were you gone? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been back, really. You've yeah, been gone really. for decades now? Because, <laughs> I mean, you went from, like, credit card, running the business, New York. Like, you know, that's a completely different lifestyle to, like, living hippie communes on, on, on the farms and stuff and going through this process. It was very, I grew a huge beard. I had a crazy long hair, a man, a man bun at some point. I mean, I was showing my son some pictures from that. I mean, he was shocked. I was climbing like a coconut tree with like a man bun, a huge beard and a knife in my mouth trying to cut a coconut. And it was like, what? You had your, you had your Tom Hanks castaway yeah, phase? I pretty much did. It was a tennis ball, not a volleyball, but everything else was the exact same. Um, and his name was Frank, the tennis ball. Um, so what did I come away with? I mean... I think, um, you know, um, well, first that the, the world is so much bigger than, than what I'd experienced so far, you know, up until that point. And I mean, that, that sounds kind of cliche, but it really, like when people travel, but like really travel, like the people who obviously are interested in, you know, your listeners, and the guests you have on your show, I mean, it it really, um, yeah, opens you up to understand there's so many different kind of ways to approach life. There's different systems. You know, the U.S., you know, we're very insulated in the United States. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, what you know is just that way of living, you know, talking about the political system to kind of everything from how just – you know, people generally, and the U.S. is a very big country, live their lives. Um, and then you go to other places like in Europe, you know, whether it's Norway or where I'm living now for the last 13 years, Italy, and it's a completely, not completely, but it's quite different. And same thing in kind of New Zealand, where I spent that year, which is, you know, a small island where everyone, at least back then, that was a long time ago, 20 years ago, actually, um, left their, especially on the South Island, their houses open and their cars open. And there's just, everyone was like three degrees removed from each other. So that was very different. I was living in a small town where after a couple months, everyone knew my name or it seemed like it. Um, and not that you can't have that in the U.S. There's small towns and towns where people probably don't lock their houses. But, um, but, um, but just to say, you know, there's a lot of, you know, one of the biggest changes was just kind of coming back and appreciating that, okay, the world as I had known it is just one, you know, it's one lifestyle, one way of being and, um, and then all these other things, and again, there's plenty of people who are doing the same stuff that I was doing in New Zealand and Australia around wolfing and that kind of thing, and just organic growing back in the States. They just weren't my people. 
when I left. Um, so some of it was kind of going back to the States and then kind of becoming friendly and being interested in finding kind of similar like-minded people to the ones I've met abroad. Um, um, and then in terms of the spiritual stuff, I mean, you know, to look back now, like 20 years later, I mean, I stuck with certain things and was into, let's say, Buddhism for a little while and was a vegetarian for a while and then kind of wasn't. And so from like um, kind of practices, those things I would say over time have come and gone. You know, uh, I was super into yoga for a while, doing that uh, every day, but now I don't and haven't for a while. But I think just how, you know, some, someone, maybe Einstein or someone said, when your mind expands, it can never go back. So I think like the experiences I had and what I was open to definitely shifted kind of my way of seeing the world and being in it, even if some of the kind of practices that I picked up were more kind of temporary. And temporary could mean two years or it may have meant like a month. Or, or, or something like that. Yeah, it's hard to kind of pin it down, but, you know, just like with you, I think kind of your worldview is so different from having traveled so much, from having lived in Norway for as long as you have. Um, and it's hard to kind of specify exactly what that translates into, but you just know that you kind of see things differently, you know, and you relate to them. Yeah. We are going to talk about food. I don't want anybody to get <laughs> we, we are getting to the food part because you're going to give us some tips on finding authentic food experiences just like on our own. And then I want to talk about what you've built and how you have been able to do that and got some entrepreneur type of questions as well. Just trying to dive in a bit more into when you came back. From then to moving to Italy, how did you end up in Italy? And what did you kind of do when you got back from this walkabout, <laughs> as you call it? As me and Crocodile Dundee call it. Um, <laughs> so, well, just to, you know, then I spent some time in Asia. And all along, once I developed this style of kind of, you know, wolfing and looking for kind of volunteer-like things, both as a more budget way of traveling, but also, as I said, to meet people, I kept doing that. So I did that in Indonesia and, uh, and in other parts of Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Thailand. Um, Wait, I should point out, Kenny, cause I, I mean, maybe this isn't true, but I think it is that, you know, you guys did well with your company, so you didn't have to necessarily budget travel. You kind of chose to, is that right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what allowed me to buy that ticket and kind of head off without feeling, uh, like I was sp spending all my savings was, yeah, it was, we were very fortunate um, that that business was quite uh, profitable for, you know, for the seven years I was part of it at least. Um, and so I didn't have to, but once I kind of got into this wolfing hippie kind of alternative style, that was just my choice. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, I wasn't making any income. So even though I had some savings, I was conscious that this is a much uh, more affordable way to keep traveling and to not eat into so much of my savings. Did it, did that experience change your relationship with material possessions? Yeah. I mean, I think what it did, I mean, I was staying in some, when I think about some of the places where I stayed in, 
like in Indonesia, just these literally like shacks and stuff. Like I, it, what it changed was it just showed me that, um, yeah, that I didn't need much. Also, you know, especially being in developing countries, I think that also for a lot of people, including myself, opened my eyes to, you know, look how happy these people are with so little and some of those um, kind of um, epiphanies. Um, but yeah, I mean, living in a living out of a very small backpack, staying in some very basic places, traveling on buses, definitely kind of having left from New York City, you know, which is, a, you know, the polar opposite. Um, yeah, really kind of changed my outlook on what I need and, uh, and really how little I need to, you know, to be happy and comfortable and everything. Yeah. Didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just, yeah, curious about that. No, definitely. So, yeah. You were traveling, you went through some of the Asian countries and then I spent like two years. So I came back to the States for a little bit. Um, then I spent two years in Latin America um, similar thing, like volunteering, working, staying in places, um, for, I mean, I, I think when you travel for as long as, as I was, you're not kind of picking up and moving every few days. So like in Bolivia, for example, even though I had my semester in Spain, my Spanish was still horrendous or non-existent so i spent like a month or two in bolivia rented an apartment well rented a room in an apartment with a bunch of other um international people and um and just did like intensive spanish uh which was great and then kind of had a similar experience in latin america traveling around you know doing different things uh, spent some time in the jungle and Peru with a shaman for like four or five days and did that whole kind of ayahuasca thing. I was still in the mindset of like, if it's new, I want it. Like I want to experience it. It's still in sponge mode. Eventually ended up in Colombia where I got connected with this urban agriculture project, having had now several years doing kind of organic farming. That's where, what I was really interested in. And while I was working there in this smaller town called Manizales, I started to apply to grad schools in the States, thinking like, all right, this is what I want to do, which is work in the developing world, uh, in international development, doing, you know, different projects like this one. But I need to actually get some skills and some expertise. So I applied to a few schools, ended up getting accepted and going to American University in Washington, D.C., moving back to the States. So that was kind of how this long walkabout ended with me in grad school. And then, and that's where I met my ex-wife, and she was in the same program. And then she got a job for the U.N., the Food and Agriculture Organization, right out of school, in which is based in Rome. A lot of people just think of Rome for its, you know, food and sites and, you know, uh, beaches and everything else. Uh, not Rome, Italy, sorry. Um, but actually in Rome, there's three UN agencies, one of which, the biggest of which is the Food and Agriculture Organization. So she got a job there. Um, 
And so we moved here in 2009 after doing a short stint of a few months in India where I was finishing my, um, my program. And, um, and then I got a job for a different UN agency applying my diploma in international development. That's called the World Food Organization. Um, and then after about a year of doing that, I realized the big UN agency isn't for me and then put back on, dusted off my entrepreneur hat, which I hadn't worn in a long time. And then that kind of was the start of this new chapter, which was starting uh, a business doing food tours here in, uh, in Italy. All right. That's crazy. Post-college, I guess you could say that you've spent one year working for somebody and the rest of the time you were either in school traveling or working for yourself. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really for me. I just, um, I can't, and it's not that I like can't take orders or something like that. I think it's the whole... Well, you did that on farms for years, Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, I was, yeah. It was more just going into the office and kind of being... In that kind of setting, I realized just uh, I'm just not cut out for it. So, yeah. Did you realize that pretty quickly, or? Yeah, I, I mean, very quickly. I mean, the best part of that experience uh, was lunches at the cafeteria. Not that the food was <laughs> that good, but I had a great bunch of friends. I mean, the food for by cafeteria standards, you know, in Rome, it was actually probably pretty good. They have chicken cosmos there? Sorry, no, yeah, no chicken cosmos, uh, unfortunately. I requested it. They just looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, it's just I realized pretty quickly, like, this is not my, yeah, this is not my scene. I, I don't think I'm going to do very well here. So, um, <laughs> so You don't make a good employee? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You're unemployable. I, I'd like to think I could, but at least then I, I wasn't. I feel so much more comfortable, um, not just working for myself, even if I was working for someone else, but in a similar kind of very small business environment, I could have done well. Like at the time, I remember thinking, had there, if there were like small NGOs or nonprofits, as we call them in the States, um, in Rome, then I think maybe my life could have had a very different trajectory or this part of my life, but there, there aren't. So it was really like the UN or that's it. And the UN, as you'd imagine, is a big bureaucratic organization. And that's just not what I was cut out for. So, um, so yeah, that wasn't really a viable yeah. option. Wow. So talk about the, the idea from what I understand, this this sounds shocking. People won't believe this, but at the time when you started this company, it was Eating Italy, and you were doing food tours in Rome. I want to hear about like sort of the moment that was that idea came to you, or that that was starting to be created. But there were no other food tours. I don't believe that, that's and, correct. I mean, it's. I just mean that crazy. that just sounds like it's sounds like such a no. But like. How did the, how did food tours not exist in Italy? I mean, I, I can't say for all of Italy, but in Rome, which is definitely now and has been for a long time, the city where there's the most, you know, it's the city that gets the most travelers in Italy. Um, it's shocking. I mean, it's just, and what's even more shocking at the time, I was like, is this going to work? 
you know, like now it seems like, I mean, I remember talking to friends back home, kind of, you know, kicking around the idea. I can picture with my one friend, Pete, who had also been an entrepreneur. And, you know, I was like, what do you think? And like, really kind of talking about whether this idea had legs, if this idea, and now that I don't know how many people do food, like how many companies, it's probably in the hundreds in Rome, you know, so this was like 2010 when I was kicking around the idea. 2011 is when I started it. So it's kind of shocking. I mean, I say that not just to provide some context, but like, it's not that long ago to think there wasn't anyone doing this in Rome is, is kind of, sh- and maybe, you know, some people were doing it in a very kind of small way, but there was no food tour company kind of thing. You know, there's no one who's formalized it in like a, an actual activity that they ran, you know, daily or something like that. So, um, so yeah, it was new and, and I, got very lucky that there was no one doing it because it allowed it to take off very quickly. Yeah. When I heard you were doing it, I just thought it was so cool. And I think I came down in like 2012. So it must've been just a year or two after. Exactly. No. Yeah. It was like a year later. You were here very early on. Did you do a food tour with me? Yeah. 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 yeah, Yeah. It's great to hear your story because I want to talk about, how you designed the experience and like developed the idea. And then I, I want to get your, your tips and then we're going to, we have like a whole top 10 list to go through and, and all kinds of stuff. Gosh, this might have to be like a two part. <laughs> if I, if it like, if you're just like, if you're starting to fade, man, you're like, Oh my God, I need to eat. This guy is like, not I'm not know. fading. I mean, I'm just thinking well, about the audience. Let me know. Like, God, <laughs> <laughs> what speed, what speed did they have this on three? Maybe they've got it up to, to three. So someone's going to take 20 minutes. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think it's so cool because hearing your story, the story you shared today and thinking about the incredible amount of experience you you brought to this moment when you developed this idea with food and and farming and travel and travel in a certain way i mean all of that experience can't help but inform for lack of a better term let's call it the product you're creating which is an experience for other travelers knowing your bar for sort of having authentic travel experiences you know here i am like trying to sell eating europe but it's like it's true like if you're if you are coming with that background you're not going to like create something that's going to that's going to sell like a city short let's say you know and you're you're going to find a way to like bring the, those authentic experiences and that's why yeah I came down cuz I was like I thought what you're doing is really cool and I wanted to like really I really came down to like see you and do the food tour like that was like the main purpose of the trip and I was so glad I did cuz it was just it was awesome and you could tell that, you know, it was, it was like your personality. It was like, it was like funny, but like insightful and smart and like very authentic and cool. You know, the group was like the perfect size. It was a really great experience. And with all of your background with food, I mean, that's been the one constant, I would say all these years, you know, the travel side and like getting involved with food and, and farming and all that, and now bringing it to the food tour side of things. And then having that deeper understanding when, a restaurant or a chef or whatever is bringing stuff to the table. You, you have all this experience to draw on to kind of understand where that, where that comes from. I think it's, it's really cool. I mean, the other thing I'll say just cause we, I, I haven't yet 
when I was doing all that travel, I mean, one thing was learning how to grow food and, and being part of different projects, like in Colombia, the Urban Agriculture Project. But as a traveler, I mean, what I realized very early on, um, you know, whether it was in New Zealand and like having like savory pies from these bakeries, like at four in the morning when they're opening, or probably kind of more mind blowing was, you know, the stuff I was eating in Indonesia and Southeast Asia and then later in, in Latin America, South America. Um, but I quickly realized you know, that my favorite part of these travels was going to like the market in Bolivia or in this really small town on an island in Indonesia. Um, you know, those were the experiences that I was most excited about. And, you know, some of, sometimes it ended up like getting invited into someone's home. And of course, those were unbelievable experiences, like go into like this one fisherman in Indonesia I was just on the beach and in a place where there weren't many kind of Westerners. And, you know, he started talking to me um, and invited me into his home and, and made, you know, a very basic meal, but it was incredible. And those were the kind of things that I think really um, were, yeah, not only the, my favorite things, but the things that had the biggest impact. And so that was kind of the other aspect that I think really inspired creating what was first eating Italy and now is eating Europe is for me, that was the best part of travel and being in, in Rome, I was in many ways for that first year, like a traveler, everything was new. And those were also my favorite experiences of living here. So it was, you know, it was very easy to try and kind of shape that and translate that into something that I could show to other tourists and travelers who are coming here, you know? Yeah, you said in your about page, it was food was the gateway into each culture and sharing it with strangers has created the most unforgettable experiences for you. So oh, I want to get in a bit into like the, the, the idea and how you developed it and stuff, but let's like get some advice on having authentic food experiences first because you've been able to do that all over the world. So I wanted to hear your advice for independent travelers that are anywhere in the world, let's say, is that maybe too broad, but you know, what's kind of your process for, I mean, you, you guys have food tours now in like cities all over the world. So you've been finding these places, I mean, all over Europe, I should say, you've been finding these places in different cities all over Europe. So what is your sort of research process? How do you kind of suss out the, those authentic places? Right. Yeah. I mean, when I'm traveling, just on my own for fun, nothing to do with like scoping out a new city or something. I kind of have one process. And then when we're doing it to, you know, launch a new city, create a new tour in that city, it's kind of a different one. So starting with the first, I mean, when I'm traveling on my own, I mean, one thing that I, I mentioned a moment ago, I love markets and I think markets are, such a great, I mean, they're exciting and there's so many things to look at, whether it's kind of the produce and stuff, but if it's a market that has kind of street stalls and kind of street food, that's amazing too, and to see what people are eating. And it's a great kind of glimpse into kind of daily life, which to me is also something that we try and do on our food tours and something that I think is one of the coolest parts of traveling is 
getting at seeing how people live, you know. Um, so food allows you to do that in a way where going to a museum or visiting a, a monument obviously doesn't. So for me, I like to, you know, uh, well, if I have friends in a place or something, you know, if you, that's obviously the first place to go. But if you don't, which oftentimes you don't, um, I, I like to look online. I, I'm not a big fan of TripAdvisor. Um, I think TripAdvisor is mostly filled out by travelers and tourists like, like you are. So, you know, you're looking for local knowledge and I don't really think that's the place you're going to find it. So I try and find local food blogs. Um, what I was thinking about it, uh, you know, when I was just thinking before I, we got on today and I, I oftentimes search for like breakfast in a place in part because I usually stay in Airbnbs where you don't have, and even if I stay in a hotel that has breakfast, I never usually eat it because I feel like I'm missing out on, you know, one of the meals and if the best part of travel is eating, then I don't want to miss a meal by having a hotel breakfast. So I'll look for like best breakfast in that city and look for not kind of the list. I mean, TripAdvisor, of course, comes up first every time. Um, but, you know, someone's food blog. Um, and every city has several local food bloggers. And and I'll try and even if it means going on page two of Google, which sometimes I do, um, you know, I'll find that. All the way to, page, the way to two. page two. Which is a whole extra click. And it's such a pain. But sometimes it's worth it. And, uh, and um and I'll find that blog and then look at their recommendations. And usually it's not just one, but um, a couple. And um, and so that's one thing I do. I mean, there are some good websites like Eater usually has, I think it's they have 38 essential places. And what I like about them and what I like doing when I travel is it's not all about just going to restaurants. You know, it's about going to restaurants and food shops and markets, like I mentioned. I mean, so usually they as well do a good job of providing a kind of a more comprehensive roundup of different types of places. So those are two things. I always stay in kind of neighborhoods um, rather than the center. Um, you know, before Airbnb, I used to do this with, with couch surfing. Um, and now I do that with Airbnb and that's a big part of Airbnb's kind of value proposition, which is to get you out of the center and, I think that's great. Um, so when I do that, I like to just look for kind of a local cafe, oftentimes to start my day, you know, with breakfast or coffee and talk to the person there or, you know, who's it's usually some kind of cool barista behind the counter. They've been great guides of mine, like, you know, giving me tips. Um, hey, what's some cool places to eat at? And, um, and so that's, if I, especially if I don't know someone, that's a good way to do that. You know, back in the day, maybe you'd ask like the concierge, but the concierge, if you are in a hotel, you know, they have their places, they might be getting kickbacks or whatever. Whereas that guy or gal at, you know, the local coffee shop in some local neighborhood, you know, is really just giving you their recommendations based on the places they think are cool to check out or good to eat at. So those are some of the things I feel like I do generally um, when I'm traveling. When we're starting a tour, it's a little different because I hire someone on the ground 
who has a similar passion for food, for their city, for their food culture. And then with them, myself and that person or someone else on my team is kind of, you know, digging out these places, you know, where are we going to do the tour? What kind of places do we want to feature on the tour? What kind of foods do we want to showcase? What kind of story do we want to tell? And so that's always happening in conjunction with someone there who knows the city, who's of the city and is passionate about the city. Okay. Yeah. Some more like a collaborative effort when you're going outside of your own city. Yeah, absolutely. Because I wouldn't feel like, I mean, how could I properly represent, um, you know, a, a city if I don't live there, if I, you know, if I just travel there, you know, I can give some insights on, oh, this place looks really cool. I think our customers and other travelers would love coming here because of it has such a unique sense of place and, and really has a great story. And I really like kind of putting myself in the shoes of it. Of, of a traveler. Yeah. I'm not the one who's going to find those places because I don't live there. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. I mean, I agree talking to the local barista or whatever. I mean, that that's there's so many advantages to that over... I mean, it's great if you want to Google and stuff like that. That's cool too, but... First of all, it's an excuse to just chat up a local. I think people get excited when they get to like show off something in their local neighborhood or tell something somebody about something that is near and dear to them. And, you know, it's like when you get excited about something and you want to share that with somebody else and, and somebody offers you an opportunity to do that, it's a really cool way to connect with just a local. And then also if you hear the same places two or three times, you're, you kind of start thinking the bells start going off. Okay, like, you know, 
this is like the third person that told me about this place. I should probably go check it out. Right, yeah. And also I noticed that with those local coffee shops, a lot of the people who work there live in that area, you know, live in that neighborhood. Um, whereas with hotels, a lot of times people who are working at a hotel don't live near the hotel. So they might have like a lunch spot, but they don't really know the neighborhood intimately because it's not where they live. Um, so that's kind of the other, I mean, it's not a sure thing, but it seems that that works most of the time. All right. So you've eaten a lot of meals all over Europe. (laughs) That's why I had you put together, you own a food company, one of the biggest in the world as we talked about. So we want to hear your top 10 European food experiences. And I know this was a tough task because listen, all of these lists are completely subjective and ridiculous. We all know that, but they're fun nevertheless. And it's always good to have some travel inspiration. So Absolutely. <laughs> so I spent the last three nights racking my brain. Probably slept <laughs> two hours. You've got no <laughs> sleep. Yeah. I mean, they can't see my face, only you can, but it's you know, it's you can read it all over. Tossing and turning. Gosh, should I put that carbonara at three or four? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Tossing, turning, going, should this, is this make the top 10? Is this, you know, I, I started with 70. I condensed it down to 26 and then eventually got to, to 10. So that's, that's what we got here. Um, and I tried to mix it up different places. There's a couple in Italy because obviously I know Italy better than anywhere else in Europe. So this is top 10 in Europe, not in the world. That's that's for okay. the next episode. Um, now you know people might be building some itineraries around this. So yeah, I, believe you know, me, I feel a lot of weight, I mean, a lot of pressure. So uh, <laughs> you'll leave my email for anyone who uh, wants to write me either positive or angry emails if they end up going to any of these places. Okay, so starting somewhat close to to where I live. Uh, so here in Italy. I'm recommending you get down to Palermo, to Sicily, the capital of Sicily, um, which is a very hot destination, Sicily, uh, on the heels of White Lotus too. Apparently, everyone is flocking to Sicily after, uh, after watching that season two. That's what I hear. I haven't seen season two yet. But anyway, so the first place is the Ballero Market. I told you I love markets for so many reasons. This market is a street market, so it's not like in a big square like a lot in Italy and other places, but this is kind of winds through different streets and it's one stall after another. You're going to see like the biggest octopuses. Is it octopuses or octopussy? I don't know. (laughs) Octopi? It might be octopi. We're going to look that up after. But massive and they're still alive and I mean, just crazy fish. Then there's a whole meat section where you're seeing like, you know, goat heads and all kinds of other stuff. Sicily is kind of like across an intersection of um, Europe and Africa, you know, and it's had so many different people have inhabited the island. And and um, and you really get that. And I feel like it all kind of comes together in this market where it feels like I could be in Africa right now, but yet 
you know, there's aspects where I know I'm still in Italy and Europe. And there's some amazing street food. I mean, Sicily is famous for its street food. The panelle or these fried chickpea um, fritters that you can get on a sandwich. Arancini um, are the risotto balls. We've got a different kind here in Rome called soupli. Those are the bigger kind in Sicily. So you're kind of wandering through this market, like shocked and amazed by what you're seeing being sold. And then you can also enjoy some amazing street food. And it's, yeah, it's really impressive. So, um, so that's, uh, uh, this list, by the way, is not in order. So these are 10, 10 experiences in Europe that I think are incredible, not, uh, not ranked. Um, okay. So, yeah. I mean, we're such animals. Like uh, I'm literally, my stomach's starting to tighten <laughs> and I'm starting to drool. It's, it's, I'm not exaggerating. It's just like, God, <laughs> like, what is it? What's going on here? All right. I- I'm going to try to get through this list without just like running down the kitchen and grabbing a bunch of food. And without running down and grabbing some octopus out of your fridge. Um, okay. Number two is staying in Italy for the first two um, is Naples in Naples, which is um, another one of my favorite food destinations. And I think if most of your listeners are in the States, so much of kind of American Italian food comes from Napoli, from Naples, because that was one of the biggest waves of immigrants came from there. Now, we have a tour, so I'm going to recommend this tour. I'm only plugging two of our tours, but and I'm doing it because I, I really think um, these offer some pretty amazing experiences. So this is this night out. It's called A Night Out in Naples, and it's in this neighborhood called Sanita, which is similar to what I was describing. This is off the beaten path. Most tourists do not go into Sanita. Not that it's dangerous, but it's just not a very touristic spot. And so it's going through this neighborhood. Two of the highlights, which I'll mention, one is actually making your own pizza. So everyone probably knows pizza was invented in Naples, um, and it really is... I mean, as good as pizza is, let's say, in Rome and other places, I love a New York slice, but Naples, it's a whole other thing. And um, so you get to actually roll out your own dough, make your pie, throw it in the oven. And then the thing that's most incredible is you go to this woman's house. Her name is Tiziana, and she's got this rooftop, which overlooks the bay in Naples with Mount Vesuvius in the background. It's just gorgeous, and she prepares some homemade pasta. You try her grandfather's limoncello, and she puts on some music and teaches you some local dance, and it's just like, wow, I can't believe I'm having this experience. Um, in Naples, I would never get a chance. You know, Most people wouldn't have a chance to go into someone's home and then have all that local food, and then she's also teaching you and telling you about the culture. So that is really cool. Um, even if you don't do that tour, I'd recommend Naples to anyone. It's similar to what I was saying about Palermo. It's a city that still has like a lot of grit, you know, and I mean, it's kind of a love it or hate it city. I love it. I mean, it feels so real. It hasn't really been influenced or changed so much by foreign tourism. And, um, and I think people will really appreciate that. And the food's amazing. So, Going to Naples, uh, I would absolutely say, is is a top 10 food experience in Europe. Okay, number three. Um, 
So getting into beer, I think you're a big beer guy, aren't you, Jason? Uh, I like beer. Right. I like craft yeah, beer. So yeah. Are, are you? Are you a beer? Yeah. Guy? I mean, I really like craft beer. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I mean, me these too. days, there's some people take it to a whole nother level. They're brewing their own beer. You know, all the amazing uh, small breweries in the states and canned beer. So I'm not kind of. I don't totally nerd out on it, but I love good craft beer, and I also love IPA. I mean, is is uh, I don't yeah. I know it's a little cliche, but but for me, it's also like everything. It's about kind of the beer experience. Um, so this next place I'm recommending. So in Prague, so Prague, by the way, and the Czech Republic, they drink more beer per person per capita than anyone any other nation in the world. I mean, it, it's it they they drink more beer than water. And beer is actually cheaper than any other drink on the menu, um, which makes it a lot easier to drink a lot of beer. And so there's this place there. I think the beer garden experience is something you have to do in Europe. And so it's called the Letna Beer Garden. And it sits up on top of a hill. And you just have the greatest views of the city. So just to paint the scene, you know, you're drinking a beer in, I mean, the oldest brewery in the world, they say, is in the Czech Republic. I know it's a bit of a debated topic, but there's some document that someone found that that's all this. It's on the Magna Carta. It's like, P.S. <laughs> if you're thirsty. <laughs> this is where you go. Um, so anyway, you're in a place with one of the most storied beer cultures, uh, both past and present and sitting at these long tables outside it's in a park and it overlooks like i said well the river just below and then also the entire city and prague's got an incredible skyline you know um with all the spires and and um and it's just an, an amazing thing if you're if you catch it on a sunny day i mean there's nothing better. So that's on my list. I mean, think about the food experiences you've gotten to have just from running this company. Yeah, I know. It's so cool. I know, absolutely. Amazing. It's, uh, I can't complain. I really, I mean, <laughs> so lucky to be able to, to do what I do and go to these places. And, you know, the R&D that I'm doing is a lot more fun than, yeah. than being in right. a lab and working with raccoon dogs or whatever. <laughs> um, so... Uh, it's really fun R&D. Um, okay, so sticking with beer. So I just got two on my list. So I think going to a beer hall in Munich. So Bavaria is kind of, you know, really the capital or the region for beer in Germany. And this was one of my very first food experiences. So going back to what we talked about a few hours ago or however long we've been having a conversation when I was in Europe, my very first spot before going down to Spain to start the program with our mutual friend, Dan, uh, was going to Munich and we went to a beer hall. I think it was the Hofbra House, which is now, I think they even have one in New York. And so, but it doesn't have to be the Hofbra House, but going there, having the, you know, giant glasses of beer, singing songs, getting wasted, uh, you know, having your bratwurst or pretzels and all that good stuff. I just think that, I mean, for me, because that was really one of the first food experiences I had, it's near and dear to my heart. But I think it still really holds up. 
And I think that's something cool that for someone to do if they're coming to Europe. Absolutely. I, I remember being there on the, the quintessential backpacking trip and having the big beers and being next to a big German guy who had uh is it snooze? Is that the thing you sniff? Oh right. Um I don't know. Yeah, I know it's what you're talking it's like about. A, it's like a tobacco yeah, that, you, that sniff. you sniff. Yeah, yeah. I haven't thought of snoof in probably 20 years but yeah i think you're right no it was so random so and he was drinking all these beers and we were doing exactly what you just described and he put it across his whole arm and just like snorted a bunch of tobacco off of his arm (laughs) as you do and then he he made me do it (laughs) (laughs) and you know in that situation you're kind of like well you know, I'm at the Hofbrau house. Yeah, do you guys say one in Rome? I mean, is Every that, day. Yeah, yeah, we say it all yeah. the time. <laughs> That's how we justify every plate of pasta we eat. When in Rome, you know, <laughs> have another carbonata. Right. But what's cool and what you hit upon and what I remember from my experience, and for both of us, this is probably you know, a long time ago, but being in the opera house, there were tons of locals. There were tons of Germans who were singing in German. That's how I know they were local besides being very big men. Um, and, uh, and so that's what made it really cool. You know, it wasn't this kind of Epcot center, like, you know, I'm at Germany and going to a beer center, beer hall, but you know, I'm here with these locals shoulder to shoulder, literally singing these songs. I have no idea what I'm singing and, and maybe even sniffing some tobacco off my, off my arm. Um, so yeah, so beer hall in Munich, number five. So we're going to go to the Island of Greece. I mean, there's so many amazing islands in, in Greece. Um, this one is, uh, so you fly into Thessaloniki, which is the second biggest city and a super cool city, which I'd also recommend just to check out some amazing food in it's very culturally, culturally vibrant. It's not super touristy like Athens. Not that I have anything against Athens, but this is kind of like a secondary city that feels and is kind of a lot more local than, um, than probably what you'd feel in, in Athens. And then I stayed, um, there's an area called How Kadiki. And I remember going to um, an area, and <laughs> these words are hard, Ormos Panagos, I think is how you pronounce it, but I'm probably way off. And you sit there and it's in a little marina. I mean, even marina makes it sound bigger, but like in a little kind of bay and there's a bunch of restaurants right on the water and you order, you know, a whole fish. Of course, they bring out the tray of all the whole fish. You pick one out, like a Mediterranean sea bass. Um, and then they, you know, fillet it right in front of you. It's so peaceful. Order up some of the fried um, uh, zucchini, breaded zucchini. That's amazing. Um, and... Uh, and it's just, yeah, I think just going to Greece, having fresh fish, looking at the water. I mean, what could be better, you know? Uh, some nice Greek wine. Uh, so that, that makes my list. Uh, that was number five. Okay, now we're heading north to Amsterdam, which is one of my favorite cities in Europe. Just think it's so beautiful, the canals. You hop on a bike, you ride around, especially at night. At night, kind of 
it's not as crowded. I mean, it's a small city, so during the day it gets very crowded. But at night, you know, also all the the way it's illuminated, all the canals are lit up. Everyone, by the way, leaves their blinds open so you can just kind of ride around and look in people's homes. I don't know if you've noticed that or if you've been there. They do that here oh, too. They do. Okay, uh, yeah. I think it's so yeah, cool. Like, I mean, do you guys want to get some? <laughs> um, so fascinating, you know. So anyway, we have a tour there. So I'd recommend Amsterdam, and I recommend. Uh, not that, you know, when you think of food, yeah, you're not thinking of Dutch food, although there's some amazing Indonesian food and Serenamese food. Both of You're not going to recommend the brownies at the cafe, uh, are you? That, I, I, I would, but I this? wasn't going there here. But, you know, I would. Okay. And that's going to make everything taste better. So we have a tour where we go through this neighborhood called the Yordan, which, stand, which means kind of garden, garden district. We start at this place called Cafe Pop Island for apple pie. Now, this place has been open since the mid-1600s. So they were doing apple pie well before it became as American as apple pie. Then we go around, we try some Surinamese food, which used to be a Dutch colony. And most people, including myself before I went there, had never even heard or eaten anything from Suriname. Um, and um, and then you hop on a small saloon boat, and we actually stop. We pop in on the boat and to a bar, and they hand us these fried uh, kind of meatballs called bitterballen. Okay, so bitterballen is like the ultimate beer snack in the Netherlands, which is a huge beer culture. And basically, it's like a fried ball that has like a beef ragu inside. And you have that with beer on the boat, as well as some cheese and sparkling wine. And and so the tour then is kind of part on foot, part on this really small, beautiful boat, going down the canals. And it's one of my favorite experiences that we offer. And Amsterdam is definitely one of my favorite cities. Okay, so number seven can I get some kind of lifetime pass to these tours? Just like show. Uh, yeah, 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 Like a like didn't a Wonka I, golden ticket. You know, you, you, have, you have one of those. Um, <laughs> I thought I already gave you that lifetime pass. So you have it. We're lifetime all it access here. access. Yeah, we're announcing it. You have the the first Wonka eating Europe ticket. Um, okay, number seven, Berlin. So staying in Northern Europe, there's this place which has become quite famous. You're going to find a line out front called Wen Cheng. Um, it's a Chinese noodle place, super cool, as so many places are in Berlin. They make their own, you know, hand, um, if you call it hand-tossed or hand-spun noodles. And it's, you know, it's packed, it's cool. The whole decor in there is super cool. This noodle kind of soup dish they give you, they have like Two different ones. One is spicy, one less so. I'd actually recommend the more mild one. Um, it's delicious. And the whole experience just feels so very Berlin. And Berlin, you might be wondering, why am I eating noodles or Chinese food in Berlin? Berlin is one of the most kind of internationally uh, diverse food cities. It's such a cool melting pot. And so you're going to have some of your best um, kind of Chinese noodles in Berlin, as well as Vietnamese food, Turkish food, two big immigrant communities there. So that's a place that 
like you said before, you know, when a place is recommended several times by different people, a light goes off. I was going to Berlin in December, literally five different random people, like random, they had nothing to do with each other, all recommended to me that place. So I had to go at that point. When it happens five times, it's like, all right, I'm destined. And it lived up to it. And so that was a recent food experience. And I put it on my list because I think it's... Uh, yeah, I thought it was great, and I'm going to be the sixth person now to recommend it. Um, all right, so number eight on the list is in in Lithuania, which I know right now is maybe not people's top destination because it's so close to um, the war in Ukraine. But I was there. I did a, a pretty long trip there a number of years back, and there's a place which is a UNESCO heritage um site called the Coronian Spit. It's like a long peninsula. It's gorgeous. And there, and I think they also do this in Norway. Um, I know they do, but smoked fish is what you have. You have all these like little huts where they have this fresh smoked fish. A lot of people, and I was one of them, rented a bike. So you just kind of cruise on this very flat um, peninsula. And um, and you stop at one of these kind of roadside smoke fish shacks. It's literally a shack, and have you know the freshest fish, which literally comes from right off of uh, right out of the water there. And then you, I'd also recommend ordering. It's known as Lithuanian pink soup, and it it is very bright, beautiful color pink beetroot soup with eggs and dill and um and that uh yeah that's delicious too so i'd have your get your smoked fish your pink soup look at the gorgeous uh scenery and um and that's yeah top food experience um okay my buddy yeah. Josh is going to be stoked he's married to a Lithuanian okay yeah woman. i'm like, sure she, she would uh get, get some Getting representing Lithuania here. Today. Yeah, nice. yeah, I'm sure she would agree. Unexpected. Number nine, also staying in kind of that part of Europe, is Georgia. So Georgia is the first place or the oldest place to be making uh, wine. So wine making started in Georgia, as historians will tell you. Um, and there they actually um, age the wine in um in clay pots that are buried underground and a lot of the wine has it's almost like a brown color which kind of to the eye looks funny but it the really the good wine tastes amazing and quite different than what you're used to if you're used to drinking california wine or italian french so just kind of seeing that you know and getting the history you know, we're talking about thousands of years. Um, I, I just found that fascinating. So there's tons of uh, wineries. Um, you know, I don't have a, a one to recommend, a singular one, but just go to several. Um, something to eat while you're there is called kachapuri, which is Georgian. They call it like cheesy bread, but it's really like Georgian pizza. Amazing. The Georgian salads are also really good. Like, even though I live in Italy, the best tomatoes I ever had in my life were in Georgia. Kind of surprising, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's number nine. 
And then number 10 is something I'm going to do that I haven't done yet. It's on my list for this fall. In France, I'm going to rent um, a bike and travel through the Loire Valley, stopping at different vineyards, cheese farms, farmers markets. Is it markets. a canal? Is it the canal? Uh, I think there are. Yeah, I think like, there's. Yeah, I'm, pre- I'm still kind of researching it. I'm kind of a last minute. This is guy. very high on my bucket list. Yeah, me list. too. So I'm, I'm hoping I get to do it. Are you this bringing fall. your son? Um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's still kind of in like in my head and I want to do this and this fall I have a little time. So I'm hoping I'll get a chance, but yeah, he's, uh, I mean, listen, I'm just going to throw it out there, Kenny. Throw it out. Throw it out there. Let's do it together. (laughs) The the train isn't that far, you know, I mean, my kids can ride bikes, you know, I mean, I don't know if this is a good, you know, my son, I still need to, he can a little, but he needs to, improve a little bit if we're going to do that trip. So that's the only reason why I'm kind of on the fence if he could do it. But yeah, I would love to meet you there. That would be an incredible food, a top 10 European food experience that we can both do together for the first time. That would be amazing. What a list, man. So there you go. I mean, you know, that list could easily be 50 and a lot of things could crack into the top 10, but those are 10 experiences, which I think are all amazing quite diverse and are all very much kind of rooted in that place. You know, you can only, I think for all of them, I would confidently say you can only have that experience there. Yeah. Do you like to cook? I love to cook. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite meal to cook? Um, I mean, today I just went to the local market, bought some calamari I'm going to be cooking that I think on the grill. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite. I mean, Living in Italy, I do cook a lot of pasta, but I tend to like to make other cuisines because it's, especially in Rome, it's the kind of international food isn't the best. Um, so I make a lot of curry. With my son, we do tacos Tuesdays, so I'll do them. It's hard to find good tortillas, but um, um, so you know, I make a very good shepherd's pie. Um, so those are some things, some of my go-tos and I do do a bunch like a carbonata, cacio pepper, two classic Roman dishes that I make. Nice. We have, um, taco Friday oh, here wow. in Norway for some reason, Friday night. Yeah, it's a great is, way to uh, kick off, the you know, weekend. and it's, it's not, it's yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Right. And it's the box taco. Like it's just the box taco with the package seasoning. It's not, it's not like any fancy taco. It's taco Friday. And that means, like the box and the tortilla bag and just the the basic thing, which I hadn't had in a long time, you know, being in the States and having such good Mexican food everywhere. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm back on the box taco. Again. Good, good, good on you. I mean, I like, and just having any kind of food tradition, I think, you know, like a weekly, that's ours. It's literally just Taco Tuesdays, but I love it. Every Tuesday we do it and it's, it's fun. And do you ever just whip up a box of macaroni and cheese? You're like, you know what? I'm tired of all this, you know, exotic, uh, nuanced food. I'm just, I'm just ready for a good old process. <laughs> I mean, I did bring some back. My son, as like a lot of things when we're back in the States, gets introduced to new things. So he discovered mac and cheese, even though, he, I mean, pasta without question is his favorite food. And he, he's turned into a kind of a lover of all food, uh, cuisine, you know, different cuisines. I've been very impressed and having fun, introduce him to curry and Korean food and all. But anyway, pasta is king. Grew up in Rome. This is where he's born and lived. 
So, but he still loved mac and cheese. So when we, one of the recent times coming back, we brought back a few boxes and we did make some. Um, it's one of my you know. all-time faves, man. I got to be honest with you. I know we're running a little long. I have a, cu- a couple more questions. Your top 20. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> got that right here in my back pocket. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about like, just get a little business advice from you. You obviously have been running several successful businesses over the years. Tell me about Big Mitch. What do you want from <laughs> Big Mitch? Talk about Big Mitch. Who he is. Do all of our listeners, all your listeners, uh, know who Big Mitch is? So Big Mitch, so I don't think I, you know, we talk about influences. I want to be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be an entrepreneur if it wasn't for Big Mitch. So who is he? So Big Mitch is a guy in Philadelphia who happens to be very big, hence the name. He's tall. He's probably like 6'4". And he had, kind of still does, um, a pretzel business. So Philadelphia is famous for cheesesteaks and soft pretzels. And um, so where he would go to parades, uh, concerts, sports games outside Philadelphia. Yeah, I mean, in Philadelphia, outside the stadium or arena. Um, And sell soft pretzels. So jumbo soft pretzels and ice cold soda. So when I was 16, that was my first job, working for Big Mitch, riding around in the van, going to parades all over the state, um, and sometimes working outside Phillies games or Pink Floyd concerts at the Spectrum. And I would sell soft pretzels and uh, that was, you know, and learned about kind of being a, an entrepreneur like he, he is. And, uh, and it really gave me the bug. So, and the two of my friends who I did it with were Dave and Ben. And then we went on to start the event marketing company. So he had a big influence on my life. And uh, so but it was a, my first food business. It wasn't my business, but my first introduction to it. That kind of got me going, then led to the other business, and, uh, and then led to Eating Europe. You know, you get older and you're, sometimes your memories about certain things you don't remember. I still immediately remembered Big Mitch, associated Big Mitch with you for like this conversation. I remember hearing about him and then working with Big Mitch once with you guys. Really? And, uh, I didn't remember Yeah, that. I, I had the Big Mitch experience one day. I just vaguely remember, it might have been a Route 1 situation, like, you know, cars backed up at the red light and, and Could walking. be. You always need some pretzels in the back just in case there's a backup. You're ready to go. I don't remember. Yeah, there was a, there was something where we were like walking up and down with cars in traffic or something is kind of all I remember. Maybe it was a parade thing. I don't I don't exactly remember, but I, it's really interesting because I know he had a big influence on in, in you guys because I heard about him. It, that's kind of beautiful, actually, if you think about you working with Big Mitch, him inspiring you to be an entrepreneur. You were selling food. Like it all, it, exactly. in a way, that's it's kind I'm of come full circle. Kind of, yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy. It is. It is. I mean, all joking aside, it absolutely is. I mean, that was one of, you know, one of those early influences. And at the time, of course, you don't realize the impact. And it's only kind of after the fact when you're kind of connecting the dots. And it's, yeah, that was definitely one of the first markers, first dots. And, and uh, I know I wouldn't be... I know I wouldn't be an entrepreneur if I didn't have that experience. Absolutely. Well, I mean, what was like the biggest lesson you learned from Big Mitch working with him? Part of it, I think one of the big lessons was as an entrepreneur, you kind of have to have like whatever it takes, you know, whatever it takes attitude. And sometimes that meant, you know, 
just showing up somewhere, you know, without permission uh, and, and just hustling. You know, it's kind of like a combination of doing whatever it takes and kind of that hustle mentality. Um, and he definitely embodied that. You know, he'd send us, we were 16, I think even 15 when we started, 15 years old, like going into some situations. I remember crashing a Grateful Dead concert at RFK Stadium in, when I was 16. I mean, and partly scared out of my mind. Um, but, um, you know, it was that kind of thing. Like, all right, like we're doing it, you know, so... And many times when you start a business, you kind of just throw yourself into something without knowing really what you're doing, certainly not always having the experience. And uh, it's a bit of kind of trust and, and courage. And, uh, and so, yeah, Big Mitch always, yeah, you know, always kind of represented that, especially at that age, you know, I was so young and just, yeah, it made a real impression. So, yeah, I would say that was... For sure. And then also he really created, you know, it was a bunch of us in the band. You got a taste of this. Um, so there was a real sense of kind of team. We we're all in it together. And so with my business, with Eating Europe, um, one of the things I'm really proud of is this sense of team. Even though we're in, you know, 10 different cities, everyone really feels connected. And I think, you know, I probably never really thought about that until now, but I think Mitch really also kind of instilled that in me. Um, so that had an impact as well. Mm. Shout out to Big Shout Mitch. Shout out, Big Mitch. Part of that is, you know, a willingness to be arrested. Too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we had some run-ins <laughs> with the cops. I was never arrested, but definitely got some citations and got taken to the police station a couple of times. But he, he also taught us how to talk your way out of things. So that, that helped us that helped too. <laughs> did he, the, he did a formal training on no, that? No, it was more, he modeled it, you know, you saw him yeah, yeah, at work. Right. How do you foster that same feeling of connection with a distributed team? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, even before, you know, so we've been remote way before COVID. This is, you know, uh, started in 2011, so 12th year. So that's always been kind of the default way of working. God, I mean, I'd love to have some kind of prescription, like you just kind of do these five things, you know, for the way I kind of manage and am like, uh, I'm a people person. I mean, maybe I kind of, Cross the line, like everyone on my team, I consider a friend um, and and relate to them in that way. And so I think I would have to say, even in kind of a, an unconscious way, kind of create like a real sense of kind of friendship and team just from how I relate to them, the people who I've hired who, who are kind of in more of a managerial position, I think have that same... Um, kind of style and um you know and then of course leveraging technology i mean we used to be on slack now it's um, google chat and uh you know and and we use uh we use all that that's my dog einstein he's part of the team you know so we use these different technologies to connect in that way but i think it starts with just you know people feeling like they have a connection to the company to me to the other people on the team, 
we try and get them to travel and do each other's tours a lot. So there is, I mean, before COVID, we'd meet once or twice a year and have like a retreat. So those things really help in a big way. Can you remember your very first tour that you gave? I imagine you were the one giving the tours. Uh, I do. Yeah, I was with a bunch of friends. And a funny, quick story. There was a woman in the market, Maria, who, I mean, at the time, I didn't really know that well. But a big thing I tried to do on each tour um, was to really kind of tell the story of each um, person. You know, this is Chesney and it's third generation butcher for me it was a lot of kind of a big part you might remember this from having done it is really learning about the people behind the food you know and italy really is a great place to do that because it's almost all small businesses so anyway so there's maria in the market and i'm like and that's maria where i buy all my fruit and vegetable and i'm like ciao maria and she just looked at me like who is this guy and then um and then i'm just like maria's a little busy right now and my one friend, Alex, who's in the same industry, I think you met him when you were here. He he's, has a successful tour business now. Um, he still makes fun of me for that. You know, it's kind of like fake it until you make it. You know, And there's Maria Bonjourno Maria. And she like literally didn't even wave back, had no idea who I was. I'm like, yeah, Maria can get a little... When she's busy preparing the vegetables, she really locks in. Um, you know, later on, Maria became a dear uh, friend. But in the beginning, you know, there was a little bit of kind of fake it until you make it. Um, but yeah, I still remember taking that. Some of those, taking time. some of those big Mitch skills exactly. and applying them. Exactly. I probably learned that from Mitch. <laughs> I mean, how has learning the language opened up Italy for you? Yeah, I mean, that's that huge. Heart? That's huge. I mean... Once you learn the local language, things really, um, yeah, really open up because, you know, you can connect with people in a different way. I mean, of course, you can travel to a lot of places and just speak English and have incredible experiences. And locals, I think, if they speak a little English, like to, you know, use it and and want to... Uh, you know, want you to kind of have a, a genuine experience. Um, but when you, when you speak the local language, you know, of course it's going to open up some doors. You're going to be in places where they don't speak English. And if you didn't speak the local language, you wouldn't be able to have the kind of access to whatever experience you might uh, be able to obtain. So um, that's a big thing, which I have in Italy. I learned Spanish. I told you over like 15 years um, so when I go to Spain as well, uh, you know, I get to use it too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I speak with a horrible American accent still after all these years, but I can speak Italian, so it does allow me to to get to know people. What is one of the hardest parts about this, what you do? I, I have this amazing team, but I'm not with them very often. Um you know, I think it is sometimes challenging to kind of just show up, you know, on your own, just in your little home office. Uh, it's not even, you know, <laughs> it's not even much of an office, but, uh, you know, every day, um, you know, sometimes I, I, being a people person, I think I really miss, not even miss because I never had it, but I, I miss out on on that. Um, and then, you know, this is our 12th year. So, I mean, I still have a lot of fire, but 
sometimes that wanes, you know, you got to kind of figure out, you know, what's, what still excites me, you know, what, what do I want to get uh, excited about and try and find those new things that you can kind of really dig your teeth in. You know, it's never, you know, those early wins, those early highs of, you know, you asked me about the first tour, that first booking. And I was like, Oh my God, somebody booked one of our tours. And then to do the tour and then read the review on TripAdvisor. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to recreate those kind of, uh, feelings that you get in the early days. So yeah, it's kind of how do you how do you continue to um, to yeah stay inspired and everything. And you know, COVID was for our industry, for the travel industry. Everyone got brutalized, and it really made you question kind of what you're doing and to, is this what you still want to be doing and everything. And now, I mean, travels come back in such a big way. It's been exhilarating to, to see that. And for those that did kind of hang in there, uh, we're benefiting from it. But yeah, I mean, I think after you're doing something for a long time, you know, you have to kind of find ways to, to keep challenging yourself and inspiring yourself. Yeah. I imagine in the beginning, you were, it was more front lines and maybe over time it's gradually moved to more behind the computer type of time, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, now last year during COVID for the first time in like eight years, I was doing tours again because we were so short staffed. And then even with the short staff, someone would get COVID and we'd have a full group book. So in many ways, it was amazing because I love doing the tours, but I just stopped doing it because I was too busy. And then you just stop doing something like, oh, I don't know if I can do that again. And it was just thrown in there and I loved it, you know. So, um, but yeah, generally speaking, aside from those five or six times last year, um, behind the desk, uh, emails, phone calls, Zoom calls, you know, that's that's yeah. where I live, yeah. not outside doing the tours. Right. Well, I mean, dude, congratulations on everything. I think it's so cool that you've built this company and – uh, giving travelers these authentic experiences all over Europe. Yeah. I'm very lucky. Of course we'll, we'll link to it, but is there anything else you want to share just about your tours, booking anything here? Um, I mean, the last thing I'll just plug, give a plug to food tours. So whether you do it with us or someone else, I mean, I really think um, it's an amazing way to get to experience a local culture, to get off the beaten path to see in you know three or four hours a bunch of different places and experience a bunch of different places, restaurants, shops, market stalls, where normally, you know, in that same amount of time you might have kind of, you know, one meal in a restaurant. Um, so I think food tours, whether you're doing it with us, and of course I'd love you to do it with us. I think we really try hard to do a great job. Um, or someone else, I give food tours a try if you haven't, because I think once you do, you'll find out it's a great way to experience a new city. Um, and that's it. Yeah. So I hope to see you in the Lou Valley. We're going to be hopping on some bikes, it sounds like, or come back to Rome. You're way overdue. Or we can meet up in one of our other cities and eat some good food together. Uh, that sounds wonderful, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for making this happen today. I know you're busy and 
took a lot of your time today, but it was Thank you, yeah. what yeah, a great list, great. man. This list is just getting ripped right out of my notebook and going into my bucket list. folder. <laughs> so there you go. Well, I'm glad this was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Have a great one. Thanks, Jason. Cheers. There you go. Special thanks to Kenny Dunn. Of course, eatingyourup.com. We'll link to all of it in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Did you enjoy the list? I loved going through that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have any feedback, guest recommendations, just want to say hi, you can always drop me an email or leave me a voicemail. Better yet, leave the link to my voicemail box in all of the show notes and you can get in touch over there. Quickly, one of my favorite food experiences Leaving the theme of Europe, I'll tell you about a moment my wife and I had in Vietnam. We were on bikes. We were taking a break, drinking some water, super hot, and we looked over and there was a family eating a barbecue outside. We weren't sure if it was a restaurant or what it was. I've told the story on the podcast before, but hopefully you'll forgive me if you've heard it. Anyway, they uh, started staring back at us and we were just kind of staring at each other for what felt like minutes, but was probably 30 seconds or maybe 20. And all of a sudden they started waving their arms and inviting us over. Again, we still at this point didn't really understand. I think when we got there, we realized this isn't a restaurant. This is just some family eating their barbecue uh, meal together. Anyway, they let us sit down, invited us to sit with them. They didn't speak English. We didn't speak Vietnamese, but we had a wonderful meal that we shared together We tried all kinds of different things. They kept passing things over to us. We even tried to pay them at the end because we still weren't even sure what the etiquette was or if maybe this was just a small restaurant that was closed and they were off. We didn't really know. Of course, they didn't take our money. It was just somebody's house. But what a great experience to have to share that meal with that family and how nice of them to just invite two hungry, hot, sweaty, dirty travelers who had just been on a I think it was a 20 plus hour bike ride either the day before or even that morning. I can't remember, but uh, what a wonderful memory. All right. I'll finish this up with a quote from Yogi Berra. This one's pretty hilarious actually. And it involves pizza since we talked about Italy quite a bit today. Kenny lives in Italy and I thought this was funny. So Yogi Berra said, you better cut the pizza in four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 